0: It's been said that there's two primary ways to approach a journey or a pilgrimage in life. Two different ways to approach a journey. The first way or person we might call the onlooker. Some people call this person the, the balconier. They approach a journey from a, from a distance. They approach a journey through study. They get out maps they study those maps. They study the pathways along that map. They may highlight key sites, circle important places. And they get out the books. They study the culture. They think about the history that's represented on this map and in these places. That's the balconier. Uh, the second way, the second person approaches the journey as a pilgrim. Uh, they may have the map uh, in hand but they're more interested in walking the path themselves. They want to see the sights on that map with their own eyes, up close and personal. They want to engage the culture in person. They want to taste the foods. They want to experience the journey on foot. And you might ask yourself, what way do you approach a journey yourself? What do you tend toward? Well, in the Christian life, in the Christian journey Both are crucial. Both are required. Uh, Christians are called, after all, people of the book. Uh, We are students of Christ, students of his word. Uh, We're called to study and examine the map of God's word, to contemplate his redemptive works, meditate upon his precepts. But the journey cannot end there for the Christian. The Christian is also a pilgrim. He has not only studied and thought about God's redemption, he's learning to live a life redeemed by God himself. He not only has thought about God and his saving grace, he has been birthed into a living hope by God's mercy. A living hope with God in Christ. Have you ever heard the saying, believe, In order to understand, those are words from actually Saint Anselm of the 11th century, the Benedictine monk, and he was really echoing what Saint Augustine had said many centuries prior. Believe in order to understand. What were they meaning by that? Neither of them were suggesting that believing is a blind leap. Or it's something irrational, something that cannot be understood. Rather, they they were suggesting that in order to understand, in order to grasp, in order to experience the Christian life, a person must trust. They must believe. They must faithfully commit themselves to it. They must become a pilgrim. Jesus said, repent, believe in the gospel. And belief is required to enter into the journey. Uh, to understand, to begin exploring and growing. In the same way, a diver cannot explore what's beneath the surface of the ocean until he first dives in. And that's very true in the Christian faith. There's only so much one can understand before they come to saving faith. And, and I want us to consider a passage in Paul's letter to the church in Rome this morning, Romans 6, where Paul brings us beneath the surface To one of the greatest truths of the Christian faith along the journey of Christian living. And this truth flows right out of Christ's death and right out of Christ's resurrection. And it's a marvelous reality for us. So it's Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. And we'll read through verse 14. Listen now to God's word, Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united, Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, you are under grace. Well, there's several themes that run through this brief passage here in Romans 6. And a number of them come as contrasts. You have life and death that shows up several times. Uh, Freedom, freedom from sin versus slavery to sin, Paul mentions. Uh, There at the end, grace. We're under grace, not under law. All important themes, but perhaps you caught the, the central theme running through there, and that is the believer's union with Jesus Christ. We see it very clearly in the in the first verse I read, verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And this this theme of union with Christ is not only central here in Romans six. Many have posited and made the argument that this is Paul's central theme in his thinking and his theology, woven throughout his letters. This Union with the Lord. Now, it may be a surprise, but do you know how many times in Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament that he uses the word Christian to refer to believers? Zero. Zero. Not once. Rather, his most common designation by which he refers to believers is that they are people in Christ. And Christ is in them. And we see it throughout. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In Colossians 2, he says, To us God chose to make known how great are the riches of His glory, which is Christ in you. Christ is in us. We are in Christ. There is a union. What what defines this union? The theologian, the late theologian, Louis Burkhoff, he defined it this way. Union with Christ is that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of which he is the source of their life, strength, blessedness, and salvation. And so it's by virtue of that union that we have strength, blessing, salvation, life. And the Bible gives several images to help communicate the idea of union with the Lord. Think about Jesus' words in John chapter 15, the vine and the branches. Where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide, remain in me, I will remain in you. There's a picture of union. Union. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uses the image of a human body where he says Jesus is the head of the body and his people are the various members that make up that body united to the head. The apostle Peter uses the image of a house. Christ is the foundation of that house or the cornerstone, the most important stone, and all the rest are stones being built connected to him. It rests upon the foundation. In every picture, from Jesus to Paul to Peter, a person's life, their stability, their vitality, depends on the relationship they have to this person, the Lord Jesus. Uh, The branch depends on the vine. The body is directed by the head. The stones depend upon the foundation. If you see a branch broken off on the ground, it's lifeless. A person's limb detached from the head, lifeless. This union is vital, it's essential. And, and what a person is uniting themselves to in life makes all the difference in the world. Uh, during my senior year of, of high school, a close friend of mine, Uh, was turning 18, was becoming an adult. And so for his 18th birthday, he invited me and one other friend to go skydiving. I had never been skydiving before. I've never been since. I will never go again. Okay? Uh, But it was his 18th birthday. Plus, what marks adulthood better than jumping out of a perfectly good airplane? Really, right? Right? But we had some options for this uh, skydiving event. We could jump at 8,000, 10,000, or 12,000 feet. I requested 8, we went to 12, right? We had another option. We could jump solo by taking an eight-hour, all-day-long course, or we could go tandem with just a 30-minute seminar, and we would be attached to an instructor, a professional who had done hundreds and hundreds of uh, jumps, And I just remember thinking to myself, if I'm going down, someone's going down uh, with me. And I remember climbing to that 12,000-foot elevation, the door opens, small little plane, the wind is rushing by, it's putting that first foot out and, uh, and thinking to myself, I hope this person knows what he is doing, this person tat- attached to my back. Because whatever happens to him is going to happen to me. His future is my future. His reality becomes my reality. His destiny becomes my destiny. And that's part of what Paul is communicating here in Romans chapter 6 about this union. Paul is saying profoundly, you are so bound to Christ that when he died something was crucified, something died in you. And when Jesus was raised, something was raised in you. You were raised. Uh, his victory becomes your victory. Uh, we sang those words, Christ the Lord is risen today. Do you notice the words? Made like Him, like Him we rise. Ours the cross, ours the grave, ours the skies. Ours is the cross and the grave and the resurrection. And it's very much in this union that our Lord represents us. Uh, some have given the example of sports. It's a great example. Soccer. Uh, here's a, a game in which few goals are made, but uh, when one player kicks that goal into the net and wins the game, gets the victory, the The victory is credited to the whole team. In fact, oftentimes, the team team members join and grab the person who kicked the goal into the net, and they're cheering, there's victory, even the fans join in. Everyone shares in the victory, even though one person uh, made the goal. The whole team celebrates. Uh, This is a day, and indeed each Lord's Day, that we celebrate the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. Of course, Paul is not addressing a game here. He is speaking of a life and death matter. And we think about this season that we're living in right now. Not only us, but all around the world. Throughout our country and the whole globe, uh, the the matters of life and death are looming larger and larger for people. This pandemic, I believe, has taken over 100,000 lives now. Its fury is... Peaking in places just this week, its power in in certain ways has not only sucked life right out of people, but even mentally and emotionally been draining for people. Just a couple of days ago, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal. It was entitled, quote, As coronavirus peaks, New York City hospitals prepare live-or-die guidance. It said, A surge in in critically ill patients in New York City is forcing major hospitals to make worst-case scenario plans for who will live and die as the coronavirus peaks and stretches emergency supplies. And our hearts go out. We prayed this morning for people suffering from this. Disrupted by this, we cry out to God for mercy, for His intercession, for His relief. And yet, in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of this wave of suffering and death sweeping across the globe, I am reminded and I want to remind us today of a much greater pandemic, a much deadlier virus a virus that no man can escape and of which no man has a remedy. And it is the virus of sin. Paul speaks about it plainly in this text and later in chapter 6. He speaks about it through every chapter leading up to chapter 6. This is the disease of sin and the inevitable result of sin, which is death. Verse 6, we know our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Consider yourselves, verse 11, dead to sin, alive to God. Later in chapter 6, that famous verse, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Death is the result of a sin-saturated world. And while the present pandemic may awaken people, we pray that it does, including ourselves, to our own frailty, to our own limitations, our own transience. The question surfaces, uh, what am I united to? What hope is there beyond death? What am I hoping for? What am I clinging to for hope, for confidence, for assurance of my future? Uh, what, what is one's comfort and, and help even amidst the valley of the shadow of death? Everyone's uniting themselves to something. It could be wealth, it could be material comforts, it could be health, it could be a little bit longer life, it could be I'm simply a decent person. But what delivers in the valley of the shadow of death? And it's in that valley, it's in that darkness, that the gospel and the glory of Jesus shines so brightly. The Christian has real hope. Our hope is not that we might live a little bit better life, a little longer life, a little bit more moral life, be a little bit kinder, all wonderful things, The Christian's hope is grounded in a man who was crucified on a cross and risen from a tomb. Paul wants to make that clear. He makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember the gospel I preached to you Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, on the third day raised. He wants to ground the assurance that we have in history, in real events a real crucifixion and a real resurrection. And it was those historical events that began to reshape and shake the world. In fact, both of those events in Scripture are accompanied by an earthquake, the crucifixion and the resurrection. There was a quake that took place. And there's all the difference in the world between the idea of resurrection, the concept of new life, and a man who rose from the dead and promises new life to those who are in him. This is what separated Christianity from all the rest in Jesus' day, in Paul's day. The, the Greek-Roman world into which Jesus and Paul ministered wanted to simply place the class called Christians into the larger arena of religious ideas. They wanted to put them in the larger category, along with the Stoics, along with the mystery religions like Isis and Mithra, Osiris. We might even feel that in our culture today. I've seen it on the back of many people's cars, those letters that spell coexist in various forms. Seems to be a religious statement to me. Can't we simply agree that we all have different but equally valid ideas in the larger arena of religion? The problem is that Paul and the early disciples refused to share such an arena. And it wasn't because of intolerance. It was because, as one author put it, their young God with the nail prints in his hands would not live together or share the honors with any and his followers suffered great persecution because of it. How could the Lord Jesus be put in a class with any others when he says things like, I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the truth. I'm the vine. I'm the resurrection and the life. Ask of me and I will give you living water that will spring up to eternal life. And when people began to come in contact with the gospel and the living Christ, their lives were changed. There's a famous line from the church historian or the church father, Tertullian. And he said, every man who sees this great truth is filled with questioning. He's on fire to look into it, to find its cause. And when he has found it, immediately he follows it himself. It's the power of our Lord Jesus and, and of the gospel to take hold of people. And and what's so wonderful about the glorious death and resurrection of our Lord is not only that it's historical and that it took place, but the effect and the effects it has on those, his followers, for those who are in him. Our our Lord's death and resurrection, in a sense, created this, this wave and wake of new life. And the believer lives in that wake Notice how Paul puts it in verse 6 of our passage. We know, he says, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. There's that union, crucified with him. And so it's not only that Christ died for me, there is a sense in which I have. Been crucified with Jesus 2,000 years ago. Paul says in Galatians 2: I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The power of the old sin nature, which once sat on the throne of the person's life, is crushed, it's put to death. A new Lord has taken the throne. That sin nature, the old self, was like a fire raging, out of control. That's the natural man. It's consuming him. And and when someone comes to faith in Christ, that fire is squelched. It just becomes then an ember. It still surfaces at times. We feel it. But it has been overcome Because I've been united to him. I have been crucified. The old self put to death. What a powerful reality and truth. And and new life emerges in two very powerful ways. One is a spiritual life. So there's an inward newness of life. Look closely at verse 11. It's an important, important verse. He says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Alive to God. What does this mean? This is the man, as Jesus said, who has been born again. As Paul writes in uh, Titus, regenerated, a new heart, new desires, a new affection heart he did not have before. We'll come back to verse 11. Look at verse 13. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Have been brought. And so this is not something future that Paul is merely talking about. This person has been brought from death to life. It, it is now. There's newness of life now. So the... Resurrection of Christ created this wake of new life. Those united to him are given new life, spiritually. Look back at verse 11. What's striking about verse 11 is that it is the first imperative, the first exhortation that Paul gives through the entire letter. For five and a half chapters, he has simply given his hearers one truth after another, one indicative statement after another. He has told them to do nothing for five and a half chapters. Many people would argue Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Romans is his most thorough explanation of the gospel. And for five and a half chapters, he's told them to do nothing. That, That should grab us. Paul wants it to be very clear what the good news is. The good news is not what we do. The good news is not what we have to offer to God or that we might measure up to God in the keeping of His law. That's not the good news. That's a a result of the good news. The good news is very clearly what God has done in Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection, in His binding us to Himself. That in His death We have died. In his resurrection, we have been given new life. Look again at verse 11. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That word consider is a bookkeeping term. It's it's the word logizomai, where we get log, logbook, logistics, logarithm, It has to do with numbers, logging a ship's progress, uh, logistics, counting the number of troops in an army. He's used it a few times up to this point in Romans, and every time he uses it, he speaks about reality, the way things actually are. So the first exhortation as he is describing and explaining the gospel, the first imperative, the first thing that Paul wants his hearers to do, what he wants us to do, is to simply count this, log this, reckon this fact. You're dead to sin to the old self, and you're made alive to God in Jesus Christ. He wants to press that home, believe it, rest in it, Let that truth sink in, and we need to do that at times. We need to have extended time to simply let the truth of the word, which Christ has declared, and God through Paul here, to remind me who I am and what God has done. I've been made alive to God, and the old self has been crucified. This radical transformation has taken place. There's new life that emerges spiritually. But then we also see there's new life physically. In verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's the promise of a new, physical, resurrected body like that of our Lord's. And that's laid out very much in 1 Corinthians 15. For us, this is the conquering of physical death. For many of us, those words are familiar from the song In Christ Alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. There in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. He has taken the curse himself. I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. And it's out of that foundation of Christ's death and his resurrection, our union with him, that then Paul spills out one imperative after another. When we get that, here's what you do. Verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. Verse 12, let not sin reign in your body. Verse 13, present your members not to sin, but to God as those brought from death to life. We need to be reminded we're not walking this journey alone. The living Christ is with us. He's been crucified and risen for you. He's bound you to himself. A few centuries ago in the 17th century, Uh, Blaise Pascal, the mathematician, really uh, genius scientist. He had a life-transforming event take place in his early 30s. We know the year uh, 1654 uh, because when he died, uh, really an untimely death, at the age of 39, uh, inside his jacket was sewn a piece of parchment. And uh, this is what was sewn, uh, these words... Among others, inside his jacket. He had written this eight years prior. The year of grace, sixteen fifty-four, Monday, twenty-third, November, from about half past ten in the evening until about half past midnight, fire, exclamation point. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certainty, certainty, heartfelt joy, peace, the God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, the world forgotten, everything except God, joy, 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 tears of joy, the fountain of living waters, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, let me never be cut off from him. Well, Pascal had most likely kept those words inside his jacket. Some people think transferring it from one jacket to the next for eight years. It's believed that he kept it there near his heart because he knew that while his Lord would never leave him, would never forget him, that we as his people are prone to wander. We are prone to wander. And we need the reminder that our God has united us to himself, he's bound us to himself. We have great joy. We have great hope in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, our union with him, this spiritual, uh, mystical union, but one that gives us life, that gives us hope, that has determined our destiny for us. And we pray, O Lord, that we might cultivate our life in you, our life in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that in him we are bound together as your people. You are the head of the body of this church, and we are members. And we pray that we would draw near to you, that we would reflect upon the marvelous truths that are revealed here in Romans chapter 6. Oh, Lord, we praise you and we love you in response to your great love for us. Continue to guide us as your people. Fill us with um, overflowing joy for what you have done for us and what you have done and are doing in and through us. Uh, We pray all this with thanks in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.